Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. It is great, great to be here today to worship and to celebrate the triumphant entry um, and really prepare for what's coming, right? Prepare for what's coming Thursday, Friday, Sunday. Uh, It's a great week to be a Christian, that's for sure. As we approach Easter, uh, there's a few other big events that we get to first, right? There's this morning, the triumphant entry. You've got um, Maundy Thursday. You've got Good Friday. And then you have Easter. And for each of those days, uh, there are opportunities here in our church or in the community to participate in experiencing each of those moments as a community of faith. Um, The early church would often celebrate each and every one of those days. They were together a lot of times for, the, for every day of the week, not even just Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but all the way Sunday through Sunday. It was this big communal event when they were together. Acts 2 actually tells us that the earlier Christians were in the habit of meeting regularly together for worship, for teaching, uh, for fellowship, for prayer, and, and for feasting together, among other things, daily. Um, for the most part, we've drifted from that. Sorry, those are... <laughs> for the most part, we have, as Christians, especially in America, have drifted from that commitment to be gathered together that often, to be together every single day in the Word and in fellowship. But there are certain seasons of the year that lend themselves to a more intentional mindset as we remember Christ, as we remember uh, his presence on earth, and as we remember what his life and his death means to us, that the culmination of the Lent season this week that we're entering into is, is one of those seasons for sure. And as we, as we enter into this week, we have the benefit of looking back on history. Or we get to see things with a certain clarity that the disciples didn't have the benefit of. We already know the conclusion to the story. And sometimes I think that lends itself to us taking each of those moments just a little bit for granted. Everything that happened out and the way that it played out, sometimes I think we miss out on the gravity of each of those situations. Because the events of Friday and Saturday eclipse all of the others. So sometimes it's easy to miss those stories in between. So as we enter into this text this morning, I actually want to step back um, two stories. Uh, but as we get there, I want us to try to see this from, from two, two perspectives. First of those is history, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty, So we see meaning in each of these stories that the disciples wouldn't, at least not until, until months later. And then second, I want us to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples as they walk through each of these moments for the very first time? How do they experience each of these things in this moment? Right As each piece of the story comes together, uh, to them it was just another day in the life of Jesus 
who was known to do some pretty amazing and unusual things. They had no idea that this was the beginning of the end of their journey together, that this started that last week. And the triumphant entry was just that, right? It was the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. Before we jump into that entrance to Jerusalem, it's helpful to look back to two stories that are found in the same chapter, Luke 19, before the, before the triumphant entry. As Jesus was journeying to Jerusalem, he had to pass through Jericho. And as he passed through the city, there's a man, a tax collector, a, tra- a traitor to the, to the Jewish brethren, Zacchaeus. Maybe you've heard of the story before. Right? He quickly climbed up in a tree. He wanted to see over the crowds. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And Jesus called out to him specifically, He went to his home, he shared a meal, and by the end of the night, Zacchaeus had a full life transformation. The story tells us that salvation came to the whole family. And then Jesus made this bold statement that the Son of God had come to seek and save the lost. But I came to seek and save the lost, not those who thought they had it all together. Right? or at least those who thought they understood their place in God's hierarchy, but no, he came to save the lost. And then as they continued, Jesus told his disciples a story about a king who was leaving his kingdom for a time period, and in the meantime, he put some of his servants in charge of his finances, and he distributed a portion to three separate servants, and when he returned, he received his investment plus interest back, from all but one servant. And when the king questioned that servant, he said, the servant said, I was afraid. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. And then he gave the king his small portion back without any kind of interest. And the king replied, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, that at my coming, I could have collected it with interest? Then the king took his money back. He gave it to the servant who had invested well, and he had these words to close with. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Luke doesn't tell us a lot about the conversation that followed that story. I'd imagine the disciples were like, what, wait, what? <laughs> that story doesn't make sense. He was afraid. What's, what's the discipline for? It doesn't tell us a lot about the discussion that Jesus may have had with the disciples. And we're not going to dive into that just yet. But one thing would have been clear. The king is going to return, and when he does, there will be a reward for those who have stewarded their portion well and judgment for those who have not. This is where we pick up the story. Right after he he spoke this parable, they got ready to enter the city. That's where we pick up this morning in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. I'll give you a second to turn there uh, if you're following along this morning. If you prefer to just listen, try to picture yourself in ancient Israel preparing to, to enter the city Right, of Jerusalem, on your way to the temple uh, to celebrate Passover. This is what it says, Luke 19, 
28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, ju- those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus at, on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's, let's pause right there. We'll come back to the rest of that in a bit. But that's plenty to chew on for a minute, right? (laughs) Palm Sunday was always one of my favorite Sundays as a kid. I got to get a palm branch on the way in. I had an excuse for a while to wave it around and act like a crazy person as we acted out, you know, the story of Jesus coming in and his disciples worshiping him. And I always had in my mind that Jesus came into the city to to the crowds, to, to people hanging from windows in this you know, all this pomp and circumstance. I had this sense that the, the life of the city came to a screeching halt and that everybody had to worship Jesus as he came into the city. And after each, reading each of the gospel accounts this week, I don't know that that's exactly what is happening here. I have no doubt that there were large crowds, maybe even thousands. You know, we think about the story when Jesus, you know, made, took the fishes and loaves and perform miracles. We think about the times that he's teaching, and they talk about thousands being there. I have no doubt that there were probably thousands. The Gospel of John tells us that the same crowd was there, that was there to witness the resurrection of Lazarus was there worshiping Jesus as he came into the city. Luke and Mark, they both make reference to the people's being his disciples or his followers. Matthew simply says, the crowd's why is this important? <laughs> Why does it matter? Because much like today, there were people who had bought into what Jesus was calling them all to, right? There's people who had bought in at all different levels. He had the disciples who were his closest followers, his closest few, and they had this idea of the life of sacrifice that Jesus was calling them to. They probably didn't know the extent <laughs> to what that sacrifice would be, but they had, they had an idea. Then you had the people who were following the crowd mentality, those who were allowing themselves to get caught up in the frenzy and the, mo- the emotion of praising this popular figure who they knew were, was capable of amazing things, who was capable of miracles, but completely ignorant to who he represented. And then you had those like the Pharisees who, who stood back at a distance, 
stewing and, and jealousy and, and plotting against their opponents. Not only ignorant of the hope that Christ represented, but actively working against it. And as we continue through the scripture this morning, we'll continue to see those, those personalities, those different mindsets work themselves out, and then we'll see Jesus' response to them. And as you continue reading this week, from the end of the story to Sunday morning, you see those personalities and the way they work themselves out even more. One of the amazing things about this piece of scripture is all of the visual parallels uh, with the Old Testament and the confirming the prophecy of the Messiah. And they're really easy to miss if you're not really familiar with the Old Testament. I missed some of them, <laughs> so let me share a couple of them. The first one is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There's two things right here that the triumphant entry confirms in this prophecy. The first thing, Jesus came in, as the prophet said, riding on the colt of a donkey. He came in riding on a donkey. And the second is that he came to bring peace. In ancient times, only rulers would ride into cities. Everybody else walked. You had to have a position of authority to ride into a city like that. And only when they came in war or with the intentions of conquering a city would they ride in on horses. When kings came to a place that they were at peace with or that they were trying to establish peace with, they came in riding on, on beasts of burden, often donkeys. So Jesus comes in riding as a donkey, just as Zechariah says. And he comes in a posture that symbolizes, I'm here to bring peace. I'm here to set things back in the order they're supposed to be. When Jesus tells the Pharisees, if I were quiet, my disciples, if I were to quiet my disciples, even the rocks would cry out. It draws our attention all the way to the time right after the garden when we hear God tell Cain, I can hear Abel's blood crying out to me from the ground. And again in Habakkuk 2, 10 through 11, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Jesus is reminding them, when my people cease to do the will of my Father, ceasing to bring justice from the world, Creation will fill its void. Because in God's economy, evil does not go unanswered. Justice is always done, even when the people left in place to do it fail to hold up their end of the bargain. Even the stones, even the creation will cry out. The entry itself even pointed back. It pointed back to the coronation of past kings in their history. First Kings 1, 32 through 34. 
It says, King David said, Call me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Much like Solomon, Jesus came riding into his city on a beast of burden, not a weapon of war. Second Kings 9-13 through says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Just like before, just like with Jehu, people laid palm branches in their cloaks at the feet of Jesus as if lining the road to his throne. The actions of the people are showing that even without understanding, even without understanding, the people somehow know that Jesus is meant to be the king of creation. Even the phrasing of what they said, peace in earth, glory in the highest. Can you think of any other times when that kind of brings your memory back to you? The angels in the fields the night Jesus was born. Peace on earth, good tidings of will towards men. We can already see the story, the beginning of the story and the end of the story approaching. We can see that the final chapter is being written. That phrasing kind of makes you wonder, right? It makes you think about the contrast of what is being experienced by each of the people in the story in this very moment. You have the disciples who are, they're excited, they're praising. You've got God the Father who I'd imagine is probably simultaneously just thrilled and excited about the restoration and the redemption that's coming closer to being filled. The fact that he's about to be restored, the, that brokenness between him and his creation is about to be restored and at the same time pained by the knowledge of what his son has to go through here in just a couple days. And you've got Jesus who's beginning his last week of life with his closest friends and his family knowing that the inevitable is approaching. And he's unable to fully communicate with the people that he cares about what's about to happen. He knows they're about to be dropped off this emotional cliff. The the rug is just about to be pulled out from under him. He knows he's about to experience the most excruciating agony of his life. And in this moment, he has to somehow celebrate with his disciples. As they're praising him, as they're celebrating him, he has to somehow celebrate and be with them in that moment, knowing what's going to happen. The triumphant entry is only triumphant with an eternal perspective. When you remove the knowledge that Christ was going to reign victorious over death, we're left with kind of a sick irony that the same people who worshipped Jesus as a king on Sunday were willing to condemn him as a Jewish felon on Friday. The same people who were willing to praise him are going to spit on him the next time he marches through the city as he's marched through carrying his own cross to Golgotha. So let's pick that scripture back up. 
Luke 19, 41 through 48. When he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. It will not, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Again, there's so much, there's so much at play here. There's so many different threads pulling in different directions and somehow coming to the same point. Jesus is weeping over the city because he knows the destruction that is soon to come. Right? Not even just his death on the cross, but less than a century later, the city that he's walking into now would be surrounded and destroyed because instead of receiving God's peace and freedom from sin, they sought freedom from Roman oppression and peace with humanity. They were less concerned about peace with God and more concerned with peace with humanity. The Pharisees' priorities were so far off, they were leading an entire nation astray, and it brought Jesus to tears as he walked into the city. As Jesus progressed through the city, he went to his father's house, the temple, and what he found there was so far from what it should have been. Those last four verses describing the cleansing of the temple and the time that Christ uh, spent are a part of the reason that the interaction with Zacchaeus, right, in the parable of the kings is so important to understand as we come into this scripture. The Pharisees, they were left with a lot of responsibility. They were left with a great understanding of, of who the king was, of who God the creator was, what the law was, what they were supposed to do, what God was capable of. And they still didn't steward their portion well. Jesus returned to his temple, right, his, his kingdom, to find the people that his father had left in charge were not only neglecting their duties, but they had taken their power and they had turned it against the people that they were supposed to be caring for. And they used it as a tool for corruption and oppression. The priest had taken what was supposed to be an opportunity for people to be reconciled with God through sacrifice, a chance to be at peace with God, and they had turned it into a money-making venture that further strained the burden on the poor. And when Jesus, who came calling himself the Son of God, called them out on it, it just put fire in their veins. It didn't convict them of their sin. It didn't challenge them to be back in right relationship with God. It just made them angry. If they weren't ready to kill him before, right, this was it. This was the final straw. And even with this knowledge, Jesus continued to sit teaching people in that very temple daily. Just like with Zacchaeus, even though he knew it would continue to stoke the fire of the Pharisees against him, 
Jesus would not forsake his mission to seek and save the lost. He would not forsake his mission to be among the poor and the least of these. He was taking advantage of every last moment that he had on earth. As we prepare to close, I want to reflect just a minute on the extreme contrast between what Jesus experiences early in his life in Jerusalem and what he's experiencing now. At the first time that he came into the city, he came as a baby, right? A baby to be presented in the temple where he met Simeon, right? If you remember back to the Advent season, we talked about Simeon and, and his encounter and how he had been waiting for Christ. The first time Jesus came, he was presented to Simeon as an innocent and unknown child, right? Now he comes into the city as a famous or, depending on who you talk to, infamous well-known prophet. The first time he was there, he was there to be presented to God for his service as an act of worship. This time, he came back to restore proper worship. Before, when he sat in the temple as a young boy, speaking about the prophecies, the teachers, the Pharisees, they sat and listened with amazement at his teaching. Now, when he spends time in the temple teaching, those very same teachers, they sit back from the crowds, listening to the Son of God, jealous at the attention that he's getting, threatened that he's potentially compromising their way of accumulating wealth and power and plotting to have him killed. Right? Initially, Jesus was welcomed into the city with open arms. But as his glorification got closer and closer, the religious leaders began to understand what that meant. And their attitude shifted completely. As soon as their way of life was threatened, enough is enough, Jesus, you got to go. So where do we go with that? Where do we go with all this? What, what do we do with it? How then should we live? Well, first is be encouraged. It's the first thing this morning is be encouraged because Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Right? The natural progression of his life backed up every word that he spoke. And as these events unfolded, they continued to confirm all of the prophecies about him. The story of the Bible is, is amazing. I'd love to, to get into that, but we're running out of time here. <laughs> the story of the Bible is just incredible in the way that it points to Christ the way that it shows itself that it's true. But for now, rest assured that Christ is exactly who he claims to be. He is the Son of God who came to save all of those who will put their faith in him, restoring them to eternal unity with God, the creator of the universe. Second, strengthen our resolve. That's the second thing. Strengthen our resolve as we think back on the contrast between the triumphant entry on Sunday and Good Friday, the people were quick to receive him on Sunday with jubilation. And they continued to listen to him in the temple. But Friday, when he was put on trial, they were quick to turn their backs on him. As soon as Christ's will didn't align with their will, they were ready to send him to the cross. 
We probably wouldn't say that we're willing to send Jesus to the cross. That's probably not something that we would say. (laughs) That we wanted him to go through that pain. But sometimes the actions that we live our lives with say otherwise. We know Christ's will. When we know that will, and we see that it doesn't suit our desires and choose to do otherwise, sending Jesus to the cross is exactly what we're doing. It's like saying, thanks, but no thanks. I got this on my own. I don't need your help. I prefer, I don't have your help, in fact. We've got to strengthen our resolve to stay true to Christ. And the third thing is take a moment to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, the shoes of the crowds, or the Pharisees. And you may find that you don't fit squarely in one of those positions, but that parts of your life may fit in each one of those. The disciples were, were committed to the cause of Christ. They wavered here and there. You know, we see Thomas doubted and Peter denied, but ultimately they would give their lives for Jesus' cause. The crowds, they were, they were easily worked up into a frenzy when it benefited them. When it benefited them, it was easy to praise Christ. We love to worship. We love to sing songs, especially when we do it in community. I remember during COVID, when I was sitting in front of my TV watching TV, (laughs) watching worship, it was much more difficult to get engaged. It's harder to sing along when you're the only person in the room singing, right? When we gather here as a community, it's simple. Not only is it simple, but it brings life, it brings refreshment, it brings energy. Does our faith go deep enough to be strong through the week? When we leave the presence of our community, is our faith strong enough to continue through the week? We can praise here. That's simple. Can we tomorrow morning when we wake up and we got to go to work? What would it take to get there if it doesn't? Right? Maybe it's joining a discipleship group or a connect group. Um, Then you've got the Pharisees, right? They're in outright opposition. Hopefully, none of us find ourselves in outright opposition, but not all the Pharisees did it on purpose either. Some of them just followed. Some of them, that they were, some of them were convinced that they were doing what was right because it followed the letter of the law, but it was completely void of grace. It didn't measure up to the spirit of the law. We all have convictions. And most of those, hopefully, are based on the Bible. And that's great. So were the Pharisees. (laughs) One of their biggest problems is they became hard-hearted toward the people. And they became unteachable to God's will. They stopped listening. They became so entrenched in the ways that when the Son of God came to teach them, they still thought that their way was better. We all need to continually be refreshed and renewed by the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit of God, or we'll become hardened just the same way that the Pharisees were 
we'll begin to think that we know exactly what needs, needs to happen rather than hearing from God on a regular basis. In listening to what he's telling us daily, we should do, we'll assume based on our past history with the Bible. There's so much more that we could talk about in this passage, but this is the final thing I want to leave you with this morning. Take time to experience Holy Week the way that the disciples would have. Spend time in, in the Word Monday through Wednesday, just like the disciples spent time in relationship. Prayer in the Bible is our way of being in relation in communion with the Holy Spirit. Spend time in the Word Monday through Wednesday. Receive teaching from God and the grace to renew your spirit. Monday, Thursday, if possible, join us here for, for a time of reflection and communion to commemorate that final night uh, in the upper room with the disciples. And if you're unable to be here to take that time for reflection, do it at home. Even if it's a short time, take some time to reflect. And Friday, take time to remember Christ's sacrifice to remove our guilt. Take time to grieve the pain and the loss that he had to go through for it. I think sometimes it's, we let it become too intellectual. Right? We know what Christ did. We don't let ourselves feel what the disciples felt when Christ was hanging there on that cross. It's okay to take time. It's good to take time to grieve the pain and the loss that he had to go through for us. And then Sunday, join us to celebrate the greatest miracle and the greatest hope that mankind will ever know. Let's pray. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. I pray that as, as we reflect um, on you coming into the city of Jerusalem, that we would be reminded that you have come into our hearts through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you have laid all sorts of conviction at our feet, not so that we can feel guilty, but so that we can be free from sin, so that we can have a new life in you. And I pray this morning that as we go through this next week that we would come to terms with the sin that's present in our life, that we would repent, that we would confess, and that we would return to faith in you, a faith that seeks your will alone. Don't let us be like the Pharisees, hardened to your will, but refresh us and renew us every morning, God. We thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And I pray that we would live to glorify you every day. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.